Hi folks, good to see you. Welcome to church. Good morning, how are we all doing? Great to see you here today. Welcome, let me add my welcome to Graham's welcome. Good to see you here, good to see you regulars, good to see you visitors. Uh, sun is shining, spring is here, woohoo! And uh, we're in God's presence, we're better to be Sunday morning, eh? Okay, uh, we're in the Sermon on the Mount, we've been working our way through this really important part of uh, Matthew's Gospel, Matthew's chapter 5, 6, and 7, where we find Jesus' most famous sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. And it's absolutely loaded with significant truth that impacts our lives. And uh, I don't know about you guys, but as I've been going through these verses, studying them for these messages, I've been impacted. They've been totally transforming my way of thinking and a whole view of God and life and everything. So I hope it's been helping you as well. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you just now as we take time in the Bible that you speak to us. I pray God help me to speak. I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak through me. I pray as we we ponder some of the great things you said, Lord Jesus. I'm asking you, Heavenly Father, that you would reveal yourself, that you would do great things in our lives. So God, help me to speak and help us to hear in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, there was a guy and he was visiting a town and he needed the toilet and there was a public toilet there, so he rushed into the public toilet and locked himself in a cubicle. Now, he became very aware that there was someone in the cubicle next to him. Anyway, in the silence, all of a sudden the silence was broken with the guy next to him saying, hi, how are you? (laughs) So he kind of hesitates for a moment. He says, I'm fine, thanks. Yeah. (laughs) A few moments later, silence is broken again. Uh, So what are you doing here? And he says... I'm just visiting town. And then the guy breaks the silence again and says, uh, do you mind if I stay over for a while? <laughs> the guy thinks, this is beyond a joke. And he said, what the heck are you talking about? He said. A few moments later, the guy in the other cubicle said, so I've just got to end this call. The guy in the cubicle next to me keeps talking to me. LAUGHTER have you, ever, have you ever been in the wrong situation at the wrong time where you've said the wrong thing to the wrong person and it's created a negative effect, yeah? You ever had that? No, okay, great. I have. Uh, this is exactly what Jesus is talking to us about in this verse or verse that we find ourselves in in Matthew 7. Jesus speaks in a kind of radical way and says this, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your perils before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. You think, well, Jesus, you're really offending people here because I don't think he's talking about pets. I think he's talking about human beings. And he's referring to some people in what seems a very derogatory way. Okay, in a moment, we're going to unpack these verses, but what I'm going to ask the stewards to do just right now is I'm going to ask the stewards, we've got little jars of honey, and we're going to pass the honey round, and I want you to take the honey, I want you to put a little bit of honey in your finger, then I want you to pass the pot onto the person next to you, and I want you to circulate the honey jars all the way down the aisles to the front. Go for it, stewards, up on the balcony as well. So take a bit of honey on your finger, and sit there with it for as long as I say. No prodding someone. <laughs> so who are the people that Jesus is speaking about here? 
Who are the dogs and the hogs? What are the perils? And what's holy? Well, in Jesus' day, dogs were very different to dogs in our day. Typically, people didn't have domesticated dogs living in their houses with kind of diamond-studded necklaces and little tartan jackets and nicely combed hair, like you all do. Uh, Only the shepherds kept dogs and they used them to look after sheep in Jesus' day. Apart from that, dogs were mongrels. They were strays. They were dirty. They were often vicious. They scavenged. They lived on, on the kind of dumping grounds outside of towns where they scavenged as much food as they could possibly get. That was dogs. Dogs were not pleasant and they were not nice to have around. Often they were feared. Kids didn't go play near the dogs because the dogs were vicious and they could quite easily turn on you. They were very unpredictable. So that was the dogs. And then there's the pigs. Well, to a Jewish person, a pig was an abomination. Jewish people viewed pigs as unclean animals. So they didn't eat pig's meat. They would never dream of sacrificing pig as an offering in in the temple. Uh, Pigs were just abominable. Uh, There was an event took place a couple of hundred years before Jesus where a Greek army with the commander Antiochus Epiphanes came and kind of attacked Jerusalem. They marched right into the Jewish temple and as a way of offending the Jewish people, they offered a pig on the Jewish altar and forced the priests to eat the meat. It was the height of disrespect for Jewish people. Jews saw pigs as unclean, untouchable. Furthermore, pigs in those days, because the Jews saw them that, no no farmers looked after pigs. Pigs were typically wild, like dogs. Pigs had tusks, they were wild, and they, like dogs, were greedy, dirty, they scavenged, and they would be found with the dogs on the rubbish dumps outside of towns where they scavenged. If you got between a pig and its foods, it would often turn on people with its tusks, tearing them in pieces. So that was the dogs and the pigs. Now, Jesus is obviously saying that some people are dogs and pigs. So as we go through this sermon, you can figure out, is he talking about me? (laughs) And then he talks about, don't give something that's holy to dogs. Well, something that's holy, what he's referring to there, most likely, is the sacrifices. So the Jewish people would bring their sacrifices to the Jewish temple, and they would offer an animal, and the meat of that animal was considered holy. Only the priests could eat the roasted meat that had been part of a sacrifice. It would be unthinkable to give that meat to a dog, to one of the scavenging, aggressive dogs. And then he says, and don't give perils to pigs. Well, here he's talking about perils. Now, in our generation, perils are very expensive, and even more so in Jesus' time. They were a rare commodity. They were very precious priceless indeed. And Jesus is saying, don't give perils, precious things to pigs. That's the kind of picture of what Jesus is trying to give us here. He's contrasting two very, very valuable things, something that's holy and a peril, to something which couldn't get any lower 
dogs and pigs. You could say he's contrasting holy, pure things and precious things like truth to human beings who reject truth. That's the challenge he's bringing to us. Let me talk about how we value truth. Truth in our culture isn't really valued that much. People kind of say, well, what's true? You know, well, what's true is true for you. As long as you're sincere about what you believe, you know, there's no such thing as an ultimate truth, people will say. How can you say this religion's right and that religion's wrong? How can, you, how can Jesus make the claim to be ultimate truth in the world where there's no such thing as truth? That's the kind of culture we're living in. People are saying that truth isn't the issue. All that matters is that you're sincere about what you believe. Michael Novak, uh, the Catholic philosopher and author, he, when he was given his Templeton Prize, had a speech. And in his speech, this is what he said, and this kind of sums up the attitude that society has regarding truth. He said, there is no such thing as truth. Truth is bondage. Believe what seems right to you. There are as many truths as there are individuals. Follow your feelings. Do as you please. Get in touch with yourself. Do what feels comfortable. And that kind of sums up for us the attitude that society has towards truth. You know, believe stuff that's convenient, stuff that's uncomfortable and maybe challenges you. Well, just hold that arm's length. That's someone else's opinion. So we're, we're in this culture where there's real no ultimate truth. It's all shades of gray. There's no black and whites. And to be honest, it leaves people hopeless. It leaves people without any certainties. And I think we need to have certainties in life. So that's the culture that we live in. That's its attitude towards truth. But Jesus' attitude was entirely different. He refers to truth here as something that is so precious and so incredibly priceless. He likens truth to a pearl. He says, uh, do not cast your pearls before the pigs. Pearls in Jesus' day were even more valuable than they are in our day. If you had a pearl from the Arabian Gulf or the Indian Ocean in Jesus' day, the fact is it was so expensive that the majority of the people who lived in those regions were totally unable to afford a pearl. If you had a pearl that was perfectly formed and was the right coloration, a pearl like that, its value was literally immeasurable. Jesus tells a parable about the pearl. He says in Matthew 13, 45 to 46, he said, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had, say everything he had, and bought it. Pock the neighbor next to you with this. No, I'm joking. Say, okay, so the, the guy... This merchant seeking fine pearls, he said, he found this pearl of great value, and the Bible says he sold everything he had to buy that pearl. Now, this wasn't a commoner. This was a merchant speaking about here. If that's how, if that, and merchants were wealthy. If a wealthy person in Jesus' day had to sell everything he had to get the pearl, we understand how valuable pearls were in that culture. And Jesus likens truth, God's things, kingdom of heaven, God's purpose for your life. Those precious things are like pearls, which are so precious and pricely. You know, you need to understand, 
the value that Jesus placed on truth was so different to the value our culture places on truth. So how precious is truth to you? Are you someone who, like that merchant seeking fine pearls, would say, actually, nothing else in life is more precious to me than God, his truth, his kingdom, his Bible. Those things are the most precious things. Would you be the merchant seeking fine pearls who'd be willing literally to lose everything you had in order to keep God, his truth, his words in your life? Do you value truth to that degree? So Jesus is saying truth is incredibly precious. And in contrast, while God values truth and while we should value truth, pigs and dogs don't value truth. That, I guess you could say, that's the definition of a pig and a dog. A human being whose attitudes rejects truth and tramples it down like it's nothing important. It's quite extreme, isn't it, that some people would give everything for God's truth, while other people would snicker at it and count it as nothing. Isn't that extreme? Is that just the total extremities of humanity? That truth is so precious, yet to many people, they're utterly disinterested in it. My brother-in-law, a number of years ago, saved up money, got himself a TVR. Awesome car. 4.2 liter engine. Mm. <clears throat> it, was an, it was a brilliant British sports car. <clears throat> Looked great, gleaming, dark blue, soft top. It was amazing. This thing flew. And anyway... He was so chuffed with it. It was his pride and joy. He looked after it. And one day, he'd parked outside his car house in London, and someone had come along with a key and just taken the key right along the edge of the car. Now, how would you feel? <laughs> Something that's so precious to you has just been treated with utter disdain. And it cost them nothing to do that, and they've just off, and you'll never find out who it was. Right, that's horrendous. Well, that in one sense, I guess, is how God must feel when we treat God's truth with disdain. It's, it's how we would feel if, if you had something precious and someone else just disregarded it. You'd think, no, that's wrong. How do you think God feels when he gives the world the best truths ever that is exactly what the world needs, and yet the world kind of tramples it underfoot and rejects it? I believe the peril is speaking about a number of things. I believe the peril is talking about God's truth. I think it's talking about the Bible. Talking about God's purpose for our lives. The Bible, God's truth, is so incredibly precious. It's actually priceless. And God has made it available to us. Let me tell you about the Bible. The Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years by over 40 authors, written in different places, three different continents, Africa, Asia, Europe. And even though it was written by so many different people in so many different places, and there wasn't collaboration among them, nevertheless, the theme is consistent. The picture is cohesive. The picture is awesome. And it presents to us God's truth. It was written by 40 different authors from all different walks of life, representing all different social classes, from kings to peasants to statesmen to fishermen to farmers to prophets all different people. It was written in different places. It was written in dungeons and wildernesses, in king's palaces, in the open fields. 
It was written at different times and in different moods. It was written during war, sometimes during peace. It was, you see in the Bible from the heights of joy to the depths of despair, you see every emotion in humanity. We see it in different languages, three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. We see in it, it was written in different genres. We see there's poetry, letters, songs, history, and letters, and statistics. We find in it over 3,000 verses of fulfilled prophecy, predictions that God made in those texts that have, according to history, have come true already, let alone the thousands of prophecies that we're currently seeing being fulfilled and will see be fulfilled. It's an incredible book. It is the world's all-time bestseller every year. It has been since it's been widely distributed in the printing press. And today it's available in over 3,000 languages. 90% of the human family have the Bible available to them in a language they can understand. This book is precious. It doesn't matter if you've got it as a physical book or if you've got it in your iPhone or if you've got it in your computer. The text that you're reading is the Word of God. In, Ju- in Jesus' day, if you were a Jewish kid growing up, when you were six years old, you went to Jewish school. And uh, the Jewish school would take place in the local synagogue, and there the rabbi would uh, open up the Bible, and he would teach you the Torah. The Torah was the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And he would teach you the Torah, and he would teach the kids the value and the preciousness of the Torah. He would get them to memorize the Torah to the point where by the time they were 10 years old, it was often the case that many kids by 10 years old had memorized the whole five books, first five books of the Old Testament. I know many of you have done this as well. <clears throat> On day one at synagogue school, the rabbi would say, he would take honey and he would get the kids to put it in their finger and he would say, taste the honey. That's your cue. <laughs> some of you forgot about it and did somebody else say, taste the honey. Because honey is delightful. It's a delicacy. It's rare. It's sweet. And the, and the rabbi would say this, may you remember and may you always see the words of God as the most beautiful, rare, precious delicacy on earth. The Bible says in Psalm 19, 9 to 10, the decrees of the Lord are firm and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, much more than pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. You understand the Bible, God's truth is so incredibly precious. It's like, it's, it's this truth that actually should be more important to us than anything else in life. In fact, if there was an exchange on the table, we would exchange everything for that. God's truth, and I have to tell you, down through history, many people have exchanged everything for that so that you and I can have a Bible in our hands. Here's what some people have said about the Bible. Isaac Newton, the physicist, mathematician, and astronomer who described the laws of gravity and motion. He said this, There are more sure marks of authenticity in the Bible than in all of profane human history. I have a fundamental belief in the Bible as the Word of God, written by men who were inspired. I study the Bible daily. 
said Isaac Newton. Patrick Henry, a politician and a founding father of the United States, he said this, the Bible, a book worth more than all other books that were ever printed. Charles Dickens, the British novelist, said this, the New Testament is the very best book that was or ever will be known in the world. We value the Bible. We value God's truth. We see it as precious. And we see that as the peril. The other thing I see the peril represents is good news about God's love for humanity. Good news, or as, as it's written, described in the Bible, the gospel means good news. The gospel is this peril. This is this peril that God wants us to share with the world. The gospel, highly valuable. And it's, if, if, if it's impacted your life, it's one of the most precious things you have. <clears throat> Here's what the Apostle Paul, who was a great leader in the early church, said about the gospel. Listen to this. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, 8 and 9. I'm astonished uh, that you are turning to a different gospel. If we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one that was preached to you, let him be eternally condemned. As I've already said, I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you another gospel other than what you've accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Paul's a bit hot under the collar here. Here's a church in a a region called Galatia who have once believed the gospel, but now for whatever reason, They've gone off and they've, some people have come along and they've kind of warped the gospel a little bit. They've talked about how God doesn't just forgive you freely, that you, but you've also got to become like a Jewish person and get circumcised and all that. And they were warping the gospel. And Paul was angry. He was so angry. You can see this in the words he's saying. And he's saying, do you know what? People who are preaching an inaccurate gospel, let them be eternally condemned. Strong warning, right? Now that same Paul who wrote that, now writes this, listen to this, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 15, 17 and 18, and notice the contrast in what he says. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up for me, uh, trouble for me while I am in chains. So Paul was a prisoner because he'd been preaching this gospel. And some of the, Paul's um, enemies figured I know we can make things worse for Paul when he's in prison by preaching this gospel that Paul preaches so that it stirs up the Jewish antagonism more against the Paul that's in prison. And what does Paul say? Paul says, what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. That's weird. The same Paul who in Galatians was saying, if anyone preaches a gospel that's not the real gospel, let them be eternally condemned. Now goes on here in Philippians and says, some people are preaching the gospel from wrong motives, but that's all right as long as it's preached. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying he would rather an accurate gospel was preached from wrong motives than an inaccurate gospel was preached from people who seem to be sincere. Does that not communicate to you the incredible value Paul placed on an accurate gospel? It's incredible. He would rather that an accurate gospel was preached from wrong motives than an inaccurate gospel was preached from people who appeared sincere. That shows to us what incredible motives. 
Now, why would that be? Well, imagine you are needing directions somewhere, and you ask me, Peter, how do I get to Long Nidri? So I say, okay, what you do is you get in your car, and you go down here, you go this way, a bit further, isn't it? and after the third left, you turn this And then I would give you all these directions. Now, imagine you got in your car, and you ended up in Dunfermline. Now, you'd be seriously hacked off with me. You think, that Peter. Now, you'd probably get over it, I would hope. But imagine someone asks you, how do you get to heaven? And you gave a wrong description of how to get to heaven. And they end up not getting there. Then they're not going to get over that. That's something you have to live with eternally. So why is it important to Paul that the gospel is accurate? Because this is all about getting people to heaven. This is all about getting people connected with the living gods. For Paul, the gospel is like a pearl. It it was so precious. It couldn't be tampered with. It was so important to God and to him. So what was that gospel? Well, Paul defines it. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 4. I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. So if you're here today and you're saying, Peter, I want to go to heaven when I die. I want to be saved. Well, you need to hear that by this gospel that you're about to hear, this is the way you get saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. And this is it. For I received what I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. That there's this guy called Jesus who is the son of God and he died 2,000 years ago on a cross so that we could be forgiven. He died for our sins. That's the gospel. Now, Paul says, according to the scriptures. Why does he say that? Because there are over 320 prophecies predicting that Jesus would come and do just that. That he would come, that he would die, and that he would rise again. So he said, the gospel is that there's a man called Jesus. He's the son of God. He died in your place and in the place of every human being who's ever lived on the cross, according to all the prophecies, and he rose again, just like all the prophecies said his words. And here's the thing. Our response has got to be what he says at the beginning. Which you received, on which you've taken your stands, by this gospel you're saved, if you firmly hold the word I preached to you, otherwise you've believed in vain. So what's your response to Jesus' death and resurrection? Your response is, I receive that. I take my stand on that. I believe that. It's not just a kind of, all right, I'll become religious and go to church once a week. I might vaguely believe in that stuff. It's not that. It's you personally have taken a stand on that truth. That is your solid ground you stand on. And when you die and go into the next life, you're standing on that. And you're going to stand for God because that is solid. The gospel gets you saved. Paul said, this gospel is so incredibly precious. So Jesus tells us that we've got to be careful how we handle this, these perils. He says this, verse 6, Matthew 7, verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your perils before pigs, lest they trample them under food foot and turn and attack you. Why is it that people reject the Bible and the gospel? Why would that happen? 
You have to understand that dogs and pigs, being a dog and being a pig, has nothing to do with your intellectual capacity. It's nothing to do with your backgrounds or your religious upbringing or lack of. It's got nothing to do with what race you're part of or what social group you belong to. It's got everything to do with your attitudes towards truth. Why is it people reject truth? Let me give you three reasons I believe. Firstly, people reject truth because they've got free will. God gave them, God gave us all free will. We make choices. And according to the Bible, many people chose to reject God's truth. Romans chapter 1. Here's some hard words from in the book of Romans. Verse 18 onwards. The wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth in their wickedness. Since that which is known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Verse 24. God gave them over in the sinful desires of the heart to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies one with another. They exchanged the truth of God with a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. So what human beings have done is, in our wickedness, we've chosen to do our own thing. We've made a choice and God has said, right, on yourself, go with your choice then. He is allowing us to have free will. He gave us that right in the first place. Human beings have rejected God's and as a result, they're in trouble. The other reason that human beings have rejected this peril, this truth, is because Satan has blinded them. It says in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel. That's a horrendous thought. That unbelievers, according to this verse, that there's a devil out there, he's called the God of this earth, this world, and he's actively trying to deceive people so they don't see the light and they don't get saved. That's scary. Now I can understand, you might be here visiting church for the very first time and thinking, I don't believe that. Well, you've just been presented with a very different worldview from maybe the worldview you've seen. The Bible, this is the Bible's worldview. The Bible's very clear. There is a devil, and the devil is active on planet Earth, and he is actively trying to blind people from coming to truth. Now let me say to you, that sounds like from that verse that human beings are victims. But I don't believe human beings are victims. I believe we're volunteers. I believe the only reason the devil can blind us is because we've jolly well just given ourselves over to sinning and doing our own thing without realizing we're actually doing his thing. The devil's thing. Why else do people reject truth? Because it's uncomfortable. 2 Peter 2 verses 20 to 22. When people escape from the wickedness in the world by knowing the Lord Jesus as uh, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and get tangled up and enslaved by sin again, they are worse off than before. So these are people who have kind of come to a religious experience. They've mentally given it assent to there being a God and Jesus, but their life hasn't fully changed. And they end up going back to the way they were before. It says it would have been better if they had not known the way of righteousness than to have known it and reject the commandment which they were given to live a holy life. They prove the truth of the proverb, a dog returns to its vomit, and another says, a, pig, a washed pig returns to the mud. So here's the dog, 
The dog's been all cleaned up, given a nice meal, and says, no, I don't want that. I'm going to go back to my vomit. And the pig gets all nice and clean. Come and live with me, Mr. Pig. Nice and clean, domesticated, brought to live in your, your house. Don't want this. I wanted the mud. And this is the picture of the person who should know better, but is just totally turned away from God and is doing their own thing. And why do they reject truth? Well, because they don't want to hear you telling them what they already know. As, J- as James Phillips said this, there is none so bitter against the truth than those who have departed from it. Okay, so that in mind, what does Jesus expect us to do? Does he expect us to say, well, stuff the dogs and the pigs? I don't think so. I don't think he's saying that we shouldn't try and connect with all peoples. I'm saying, I believe he's saying that we've got to be wise in how we connect with all peoples, just as he was. So let me give you four tips just to end here. How I believe God wants us to present the perils of God's truth and God's forgiveness and gospel to our world. Number one, discern where people are at. Now, Jesus was a master at this. He didn't just, you notice, Jesus didn't deal the same way with any one person. When you read through the Gospels, Jesus worked with different people in different ways. There's no one occasion where he just did the same thing like he did before. And yet many of us, when we're trying to share something with others, we've got our mechanical mechanisms of sharing the gospel. But actually, that's very unlike Jesus, because Jesus worked with the person and knew where the person was at. An example of this is when Jesus comes to his hometown. Listen to this, Matthew 13, 58. He did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. That's amazing, isn't it? They stopped God. Do you think God didn't want to do miracles in his hope, Jesus' hometown? Of course he did. But they managed to stop God, what God wanted ideally to do in that place because of their unbelief. Now, here's my question. And I, this dawned on me a few weeks ago. I was just thinking about that verse. He could not do many mighty miracles there because of their unbelief. The question is, did he pray for them? Did he pray for them and they didn't get well? Is that what happens? Do you think that happens? I don't think that happens. I think he wouldn't even have prayed for them. There's the difference between Jesus and us, maybe, right? Jesus knew where they were at, and I don't think he would have... So, let me just ask, if he had prayed for them and they didn't get well because of their unbelief, what would then people have said about Jesus? And about the truth that he stood for. They would have trampled that peril underfoot, wouldn't they? They'd have said, that doesn't work. You're not the real deal. Would they not have? Is anyone alive? <laughs> Are you with me? So Jesus, I don't believe Jesus even prayed for them. That's my point. Maybe we should be a bit more like Jesus. Maybe we should be a bit more discerning. Maybe we dishonor God and undermine people's growth and where they're at by being presumptuous. Jesus didn't even pray for them, I believe. Jesus knew where people are at. You notice, after Jesus' resurrection, he didn't appear to any non-believer or any skeptic who was anti-him. Didn't appear to any one non-believer. And again, that's so unlike me. If I'd been Jesus and risen from the dead, I'd have gone knocking on the door of, of Pilate 
and the Pharisees and all the people who crucified him and the centurions. You know? Remember me? Yeah, got it wrong. That's what I would have been doing. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus in his resurrection appearances only appeared to believers. When unbelievers were constantly saying to Jesus, come on, show us a sign, Jesus, give us a miracle. In fact, at one point in the Gospels, Herod asked that he wanted to see Jesus because he wants to see Jesus perform a miracle in front of him. Did Jesus pander to that? Did he go with that? Did he, pam- did he kind of go along with their agenda? No, he didn't, not once. Now, he did do many miracles that were signs, but he never once did a sign in response to their skeptical, cynical, dog-like, pig-like attitude. He was not willing to cast the pearls before the swine. Jesus knew where people were at. Now, if there's a, if there's a fruit tree, right, and there's fruit ready to, uh, all the fruits in the tree, and you grab an apple, what we often do is we grab the apple, and that apple's not ready to fall yet, but we just keep yanking that apple, right? Forgetting all the other apples that might be ready to fall, we focus in on that one. And that's how we are with people. We want people to get this truth. So we get in their case and we kind of, come on, believe the gospel, come to church with me. You know, and they're just not ready yet. Well, respect them and respect the truth enough to not cast your peril before the swine. Uh, secondly, I encourage you to pray for people. How do we get the truth to people who are maybe resistant to truth? Pray for people. Why pray? Here's why. Because only God can change people's hearts. So you've got to pray for people. You can't persuade someone. You'll end up manipulating them or trying to control them. That's not how we should be. We should pray for them. It says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, I urge you then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone. This is good and please, is pleasing to God, our Savior, listen, who wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. How many people does God want to get saved? All men. Don't misinterpret what Jesus is saying. Jesus, when he says, don't cast your pearls before the swine or the dogs, give, give them what's holy, he's not saying, don't love them and don't pray for them. Because you need to know, God wants to save dogs and pigs. Because I was a dog and a pig once. God wants to save human beings who are maybe anti-truth in their agenda. God wants to save them. So how does he do that? Well, we've got to work with him in that. We've got to be praying. Do you pray for people who you know are resistant to truth? Are you praying for people who you know are anti-truth for whatever reason they've got? Are you actively praying for them? Does it move you? Are you stirred to pray for them in the morning? Are they on your minds? Are they on your radar? Do you care enough for them to pray for them? I remember for, for years I prayed for my sister. My sister's seven years older than me. And, you know, I came to faith when I was 15 uh, and she was 22 at that time and we had many discussions about it and she really wasn't interested in, in doing what I had done and I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and I remember praying with passion before God for my sister my mum died in 1996 and the last words mum heard when she was alive uh, we were sitting beside mum in, in she was in bed we were sitting beside her for Andrew and Sue were there as well and Andrew was reading to her from the book of Psalms. And this is the last word she heard. And then she just, big sigh, and she died. The last word she heard was this. Let our sons in their youth be as grown-up plants and our daughters as corner pillars. 
fashioned for his palace. I took that as God's promise. God was speaking to mum about my role as a young person who was going to start leading a church. But then he was speaking to mum about how my sister would be very much involved with the king's work in his palace. And I I believe that was God's promise that my sister had a purpose in God. So we prayed and we trusted. Anyway, a couple of years ago, my sister came to visit as I was preaching down in Leith, came to see Peter's church. And I preached and at the end of the message, she was one of the ones at the end who put her hand up and gave her life to Jesus. See, I could have, I could have argued till I was blue in the face to argue a case for truth. But you have to understand that God changes people's hearts. So you need to pray. Thirdly, you need to care for people. Care for people. There was a young salesman who'd been very, very disappointed at losing the big sale. And he turned to his manager and says, I guess it just proves that you can't You can lead the horse to the water, but you can't make the horse drink. And the manager says, son, take my advice. Your job is not to make him drink. Your job is to make him thirsty. Now, what some of us do is we nag people. We call it evangelism. But actually, we're nagging people. You're on their case. Become a Christian, become a Christian, Christian. Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you. And you're leaving Bible verses everywhere under the pillow giving them a tattoo, God loves me, in the middle of the night. What the? (laughs) Right? You're very unsubtle. You're just on their case, and they know you're on their case. You're doing everything you possibly can to try and convert them. You can't convert anyone. God does that. You discern where they're at. You stop trying to pull the apple. You pray for them. Trust God to change their heart, and then you care for them. You just love them to bits. Don't nag them, ladies. <laughs> I'm serious. I've got a verse for you. First Peter, this is the first one I wrote. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Wives, in the same way, submit to your, yourself, to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, what's the words? That's the peril. I'd give everything for the words. That's so precious. You put the peril out there. They don't believe it. So if any of them don't believe the word, they've already heard the word. Would you agree based on this verse? They've heard it. They've just chosen not to believe it at this point. That they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives that when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. So now you've told them. You've put the peril there. You've presented the truth. Don't nag them whether it be your husband or whether it be your wife or whether it be your work colleague or whether it be your neighbor or whether it be your mom or your dad or your brother or sister or someone who's very close or dear to you, you've presented the truth. Now, don't keep presenting it. You've already sowed the seed that can transform their life. Now, what you do is you show them what it looks like to be a Christian. You don't preach with words. St. Francis of Assisi said, preach the gospel wherever you go and when necessary, use words. Someone once said, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So now you demonstrate what it looks like to be loved. You show them how much God loves them by the way you meet their needs. And when they're in trouble, you're the one helping them out. And when they phone, you're giving them time. And you're demonstrating the love of God. And all of a sudden, the words you spoke about the love of God are now in the context of a life that's lived demonstrating that love of God. And their hearts are wide open. 
Fourthly, share with people. You see, folks, if we've become aware of a truth, and this truth is the gospel that can save people for all eternity, and that unlike pearls that you can get from a jeweler's maybe, there's only one and it's for me. This pearl is available for everyone who's ever lived. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid the price, making it possible for all humanity to be saved. And when you realize that, how on earth could we live with ourselves by keeping that to ourselves? We live these comfortable Western lives. We don't like rocking the boat. We don't like being seen to be different. We like to blend in. And yet, we have an eternal message that can save your work colleague, that can save your family member. Why are you not sharing it? We need to be sharing. And we need to be doing the other things. We need to be discerning where people are at. We need to be praying for them. We need to be caring for them. But there comes a moment where actually, we need to share. We need to share. We need to tell them the truth, show them the love, and make an impact. Patrick Dixon, who a few years ago spoke in our church, he heads up a large charity called Asset, and they look after AIDS victims around uh, many parts of Eastern Europe. And in the early days, they were working with, in areas where the treatment wasn't available for AIDS to the degree it is here, and as a result, people were suffering greatly with the HIV virus. And he, motivated with the love of God, set these charities up to help care for and provide hospices and medical care for people in those situations. Patrick Dixon became very good friends with a Buddhist man who was, he had a gay background. He was Buddhist, and he didn't have any faith in God. But he became very good friends with Patrick Dixon. And Patrick, on, on numerous occasions, got into great discussion about Jesus and about Jesus' death and resurrection, about the gospel. And this friend of Patrick's constantly rejected that message. So Patrick just kept being a friend, kept praying for him, kept caring for him. Anyway, the man moved away from the center, and Patrick didn't know where he'd gone. And he knew that if someone moved away from the center in that particular region where they were living, there wasn't any other help available, there wasn't much care available, and it wouldn't be long they would have to live. If they got a cold or an infection, their immunity wouldn't be able to cope with it, and they would likely die. Out of the blue, several months later, so he'd assumed his Buddhist friend had most likely died. Several months later, out of the blue, this friend phones him up and says, Patrick, it's me. How are you doing? I haven't heard from you. Where have you been? He said, I have to tell you. I went home to visit some of my relatives, and when I was away from the hospice, I got an infection. And the infection, infection went really deep in my lungs and I felt myself fading away and I was rushed into a local medical center and there as I lay there in the bed, I found myself fading away and I got to the point of death where I was in this limbo land between life and death. In that moment, Patrick, I became highly aware for the very first time in my whole life, I became highly aware of the reality of the presence of God And then coming into my head like a flash were words and statements that you had made to me about Jesus and his death and his resurrection. And I knew in that instant that that was truth. 
And I reached out and I believed that truth. And I experienced the acceptance of God. Next thing I know, I revive, I recover. And I'm lying in the hospital beds. And the first thing I ask for is a Bible. And one of the nurses managed to find a Bible. And I just wanted to phone you, Patrick, to tell you, I've become a Christian. I follow Jesus. I'm doing good. A couple of months after that, a couple of months after that, that man died. But I think, wasn't it fantastic that, see, I wonder how many people don't revive, but they had that experience. We have absolutely no idea. All I know is this, that the gospel we believe has eternal implications and it is as true as any truth can ever be. And when you sow that seed of truth, even though initially it may be rejected, like a dog or a pig would, that seed of truth has the potential to transform our life. So you discern where the person's at, you pray for the person, you care for the person, and when you can, you share with the person and you watch what God does. Church, I want this church to be twice as big this time next year. That's possible if each one of us takes personal responsibility for the people that you know. And while some of you are confident and feel eloquent when it comes to explaining these things, and others of you feel weak and inadequate, I'm in the weak and inadequate camp. I don't feel confident when it comes to sharing these things, but I believe in them. Just give God something to work with. In your own weak and fumbling ways, share the life of God with your friends, your family. Tell them about the love of God. When Jesus says, don't throw pearls before pigs and don't give what is holy to dogs, he's not saying that he doesn't want to save dogs and pigs. He's saying, discern where people are at because this truth is valuable. Present it well. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, first of all, let me just start by saying thank you on behalf of us all for the gospel that we have that has been made available to us at your expense. Thank you, Jesus, so much for making the forgiveness of sins available for all peoples in this room and for every person that we know in Edinburgh. Thank you, Jesus, for your death and your resurrection. We are eternally grateful to you and we honor you today. Father, I believe that you want us to be a people who are missionaries on our doorstep. You want us to be people who are reaching out to our friends, families, neighbors, work colleagues, and communities. I pray, God, that we wouldn't be so apathetic that we would stay within our comfort zone and we would say nothing. I pray, God, we would speak up. But I pray, God, you'd give us wisdom to discern where people are at so that we're not making cheap this great truth that you've given us. Again, God's presence. God's people, make a decision just now. Take a moment to pray to him and respond to him on what you've heard. I believe it's time that we make a decision to be missional. Every one of us 
makes a decision to be a missionary of truth to a loved world around you. Make a decision before God just now. Some of you take a moment just now to lift some of your nearest and dearest before God. Maybe you've even given up praying for some people. Don't quit. God desires all peoples to get saved and come to the knowledge of truth. That's what the Bible says. So just name those people before God just now. you've heard these prayers you hear all these names that have been named before you just now probably several thousand names have just been lifted before you and we all ask an agreement for each other's prayers we ask you God please heavenly father answer our prayers please father change eternity for these people we've mentioned God please intervene in their lives let what is so precious to us become so precious to them God because they're precious God, let them get it because they need it, God. Let them understand truth. God, let it go deep in their souls and let them be changed forever. God, we ask it in Jesus' name. Jesus' name. God, grant us effectiveness. God, grant us effectiveness as we go into this world and present you to the world. Help us to be wise the way we do that. Forgive us when we've not. while people are praying their response let me give you an opportunity today if you're here and you know that in your heart of hearts you know that you're not saved and today you've heard that it's possible for you to be saved and that there is a truth you can believe in and the ultimate truth is that Jesus died in your place on the cross so that you could be forgiven and have eternal life and he rose again and he's alive right now And the Bible promises if you put your faith in him, and that's not just in a lightweight way, it's talking about in a deep way. It's talking about in a wholehearted way. If you put your faith in Jesus, commit your life to God, and declare that Jesus is the Lord of your life, and the Bible says you will be saved. So right now, I'm going to give you the opportunity to do that. If you're here today and you're saying, Peter, I want saved then I invite you just very simply to pray this prayer with me just now. And I encourage you to pray it quietly under your breath. Repeat the words after me, but let it be the cry of your heart. Pray with me. Pray, dear Lord God, thank you for the incredible love that you've shown us. Because of your love, you are willing to have your son, Jesus Christ, die in my place in the cross so that I could be forgiven and have eternal life today God I accept that wholeheartedly 
I ask you for forgiveness. And I embrace you, God, as my God. I believe, Lord Jesus, you rose from the dead on the third day. I believe you're alive right now. And today, I declare you as the Lord of my life. Thanks for hearing my prayer, God. Amen.